Welcome to your mandatory wellness session. I'm your host, Anoop. And I'm your other host, Samir. Samir, welcome to season two. How's it going? So here's the thing. I, in our podcasting, like hosting site, you there's an ability to create an actual season two. But then in that case, you start relabeling numbers. And I don't want to do that. No. <laughs> It's all going to be part of one big season one that stretches on forever. For all of a time. But, but we'll, we'll know. <laughs> mentally, yeah. Mentally, this is season two. Season two. Uh, and I think you'll know, you know, several people, they didn't get picked up. So we're going to have new actors playing some of the main characters. It's going to be kind of awkward. Aunt Susan, she's not back on board this season. So oh, wow. she's just kind of gone. Yeah. Hmm, just... But, but like one of those gone where it's like not even addressed or just like... No, not even addressed. Yeah, okay. she's not right. getting a very special episode. Frankly, she was very malignant during the contract negotiations. Oh, so see. it was not an amicable departure. I see. Okay, yeah, sure, sure. So you're not going to... Yeah, you're you're not going to give her the kind of the character, the honor of, uh, you know... Uh... No, no. And I mean, frankly, she played such a minor role in the first season. It's like, who even cares, right? Right. Now compare that to Vigilante. Key. Well, Vigilante, yeah. I think she's going to go the sort of arc of Steve Urkel, where it's like, oh, we realize that this is actually the main character. Oh, right. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> it's like, sure, originally it's like, yeah, family matters, but more it's like Steve Urkel. Matters. He, he, he matters, <laughs> yeah. The family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's actually, that is honestly weird how that happened. <laughs> that is a... Yeah, they really. So it's interesting. So I, I I never really watched that show, but I um as I do occasionally, we'll go down random Wikipedia rabbit holes. The reasonable mm-hmm. thing to do with my time. And um, several months ago, I did that with Family Matters. Dude, that show goes off the rails. I watched, I think, maybe all of Family Matters. That's <laughs> crazy. At the end, they like jump the shark like multiple times in the same season. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there comes a point in time. This is actually relatively early on that Steve Urkel makes a machine that makes him cool. Yes. And he becomes Stefan Urkel. Classic. And I think that storyline was, like, popular enough that, like, they kept revisiting Steve Urkel's various technologies and otherwise his other inventions. Essentially, he goes from being just, like, a generic nerd to actually legitimately being, like, an amazing scientist. Uh, At one point in time, he does go to space like a, yeah exactly like space and like twins and the clone or something, something yes like so crazy right eventually he splits himself off from stefan urkel and stefan urkel gets to live a normal life as well as steve urkel and then laura is briefly in like a long distance relationship with stefan urkel but then i think they break up she ends up marrying steven urkel at the end of all of this. Wow. Okay, well, well, right off the bat, spoilers for Family Matters. <laughs> yeah, man, you know, whatever. It's been a little bit. Also, no one, I mean, really, no one is like, I should start watching Family Matters in 2021. Hey, you never know. <laughs> if somebody was about to watch Family Matters, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> also, weird. I cannot legitimately tell you whether or not it holds up. I have no way of knowing. I remember at the time I very much enjoyed it. I was a child. But it was like part of that lineup of just like TV shows that was continuously on for a period of time. But like I have enough discretion to know that like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, 
better than Family Matters. Sure, yeah. How much better? I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I never, like, so I, I watch, of course, like, random episodes of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I don't know how many I've seen, but, like, I, I never watched it through or with the kind of, like, actually watching a lot of episodes the way, like, a lot of people did. So, like, I've, I don't know, I've watched certainly, like, a handful, maybe, like, 10 or 15 episodes. Like, like I know enough that I know the characters, I know the general, like, plots that happen, but not, not with any great amount of detail. I mean, enough that we both made that joke about Aunt Susan, and we know that what we're referring to, because both of those shows have examples of that. Wait, uh, do both? Yes. Well, in Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, uh, somebody gets recast right. entirely. That, that's, is it the sister, I think, or something? It's, it is the aunt. Yes. Okay. It's Aunt Vivian, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And then in Family Matters, a character goes up once, like a set of stairs one season, and then she's just not in any of the later seasons. That's very funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a great choice. <laughs> and they never refer to it again. Family Matters, hard to say, but it certainly enjoyed at the time. Okay, so, 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 so he splits himself off. Then the two different versions or two different halves are living their lives. And then they there's, there's this love triangle happening with like two girls, but then... Each one of them gets with one of the people. Is that what it is? Yes, something to that effect. I can't quite remember that all the intricacies of it. I know Steve Urkel or Stefan Urkel becomes a model in France, I want to say. Wow. Yeah. I, I did the Wikipedia dive like several months ago, so I honestly don't even remember this, but interesting. Okay. Yes, because I, I think there is an arc where Steve makes a teleportation pad that allows him to teleport to france i see and, and so there's an arc about that and like he's interacting with stefan or kel ah right so, on the regular so low-key he's like the greatest scientist ever to live exactly exactly yeah, yeah, it's yeah, kind of yeah. interesting because later he goes to space and they treat that like it's a very big deal but i'm like i think he made teleportation earlier which is a bigger deal i mean objectively bigger because i mean going to space happened in real life and teleportation is like I mean, to call it a pipe dream, I think undersells pipes. <laughs> yeah. Well, he also made a cloning machine. And there's some, there's some horror elements to that. Because if somebody makes a cloning machine first and then makes a teleportation bad, be very concerned about that teleportation bad. Yeah, how they're doing teleportation. Right. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> You're right. sure it's a teleportation? Yeah. And it's the same me who's on the other side, basically. Well, see, now I'm worried. <laughs> oh, too late. Button. <laughs> <laughs> it is the same you. There's one slight difference. And it's just that you're slightly less worried about teleportation. <laughs> right, right. And you don't remember this conversation happened. Yep. That's the difference. There's a great Key and Peele skit about Family Matters that uh, is worth checking out. That's it's a little, little, little thing for the listeners there. <laughs> Go check it out. How of a... Uh... I thought there was an original point. I don't know how we got on the No, thing. I just, I said season two of the podcast and then we just went right into this. And then we just, okay, all right. So I'll just... do the usual, sorry, I'm breaking formats here. Uh, let me, Samir, how's it going? <laughs> oh yeah, it's, it's pretty good. It's solid. It's not bad. You see how the season two bit, objectively better. Uh, yeah, without, without a question, without a question. Um, okay, right. So season two, very exciting. This season, we're going to be uh, discussing some more topics they're going to be related to wellness, like at least somewhat, probably, if I had to guess. But, you know, sometimes when we start talking about the topic, we won't know how it's related to wellness. But by the end of it, we'll figure it out. Oh, we'll find it. <laughs> yeah, we'll find it. We'll find it. it. Might be tortured to get there, but we'll we'll find it. We'll, we'll edit out the torture. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, people, I mean, you know, it's... 
sometimes, you know, those those episodes, everyone's like, oh, wow, great episode. And then uh, I'm like, wow, you should have seen the original. <laughs> that was like 20 minutes removed <laughs> to get that to where it, to like a coherent. Yeah, yeah. You remember that part where we stopped talking for five minutes to try to figure out where we were going? Yeah, you don't. That's the point. It's pretty key. Oh, very exciting. Um, how are things with you? Now nah, let's leave this silence. In. <laughs> yeah, this is good. This is this is a good, it's a good amount of silence for sure. I want a good. I want enough silence that they think that their podcast app has stopped working. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I, I specifically kind of use that as a metric when I'm figuring out how much silence to leave. Because sometimes you want some silence, right? Like you want mm-hmm. a pause, but I don't. I, I want the pause often to be like less than like four seconds or so, specifically for that. Because by the time you're like, oh, did my podcast app pause? If you reach toward it to do anything. By that point, it'll have already resumed. But if it's like 10 seconds, you'll make it to the app before. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the prank version of that is like waiting at least like one second longer so that they've opened. They're like looking at their phone when you start talking again. And Mm. they're like, ah, god damn it. And then you put it back. uh, Then you wait. I want to say like five minutes. Then you do it again. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's like a little form of torture. They won't notice it, but it will make them objectively less happy throughout right, the rest right. it, of the it, day. It will be annoying for sure. Which is which is the goal of any podcast to annoy your few listeners. Well, I think the problem is obviously I think the original goal of podcast was to entertain people, right? Sure. But now there are so many podcasts that merely entertaining people it's blasé it's a given yeah you know that's what everybody does it's kind of like how you know movies evolved over time right initially it's just like oh here's some slapstick humor you'll laugh you'll go home right it's like when people were making that i don't think anybody imagined horror movies right because like why it's objectively an unpleasant experience but yeah you're i mean you're telling me yeah once you're saturated with pleasant experiences finding an objectively unpleasant experience becomes in and of itself pleasant because it's different maybe if i watched more movies at some point i'd be like oh wow horror interesting but i don't so now when i watch a movie i'm like i want this to be enjoyable and not yes, terrifying yes. i remember once upon a time a friend of ours mentioned that he just likes watching movies with happy endings and at the time i was so offended by that as a concept and Luckily, I've softened over the years because I was just like, how dare you? Movies should have to be neatly tied up. Yeah, I disagree with that. Because I think if you're going into it knowing... Here's the thing. I don't mind a movie with a happy ending. But I think if every movie I watch is that, then you lose some of the tension. I mean, it's different, of course. If you're watching like a rom-com, clearly that's... I mean, that's like part of the genre. It's like a totally different thing. But I mean like a, a, a more like standard... You know, it's like a, a movie that it doesn't fall neatly into su- such a genre. Yeah, I feel like you got to have some some tension there. You know, like, how is this going to end? I, I it, That's kind of what helps drive your plot and your action, which is, I don't know, could this end well? Hopefully. But maybe it won't. But your desire for that is purely a desire based on your understanding of story structure. Because you fundamentally believe that the story will end well, so that it could be surprising to you when the story doesn't end well. Right? Yeah. But if you have no understanding of story structure, then every movie is like this pure experience to you, right? And similarly with this podcast, of course, you expect to be entertained. And so if I leave you feeling mildly annoyed... 
that's a little texture to your life. All right. It's like granola. Just brilliant. Brilliantly argued. <laughs> I am somewhat reminded of this, though, which is that there's a stand-up comedian, uh, Anthony Jeselnik, who I'm sure you're aware of. And he's particularly notable for, um, he does a lot of Comedy Central roasts and he has some stand-up. And his thing is he makes very dark jokes that have, like, these very sort of, like, fucked up twists to them. And it, it can be a kind of enjoyable style to watch a little bit because it's, like, you really don't see where things are going and that kind of throws you off. And admittedly, some of the jokes really are quite fucked up. But my problem with watching, like, when he has, like, a special, because I've watched a special of his before, which is, like, an hour long, which is that, like, a 20 minutes into it, I'd lost some entertainment value because I just knew every joke was going to go to the worst possible place. And part of what makes his jokes good is like the shock factor. And so when you're just expecting to be shocked, you're no longer shocked. <laughs> like, right. I mean, it's the cards against humanity problem. Right. Uh, uh, fantastic. Yes, precisely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we're going to, if you and I talk about cards against humanity, we will define ourselves as fundamentally other. <laughs> Because I think a lot of people still find Cards Against Humanity pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I I want to be clear. Cards Against Humanity can be very funny, definitely. It's just, there are things that are better because they require more creativity and uh, are also funny. So why not do those instead of just relying on what someone else has written? Right, right. It's also, for the very same reason, once I know that there is a card in there that says i don't know hitler's testicles or whatever like that that is a very that would be a perfect card that would be the mo- card. i mean if you were like which of these is a cards against humanity card and like a lineup and one of the answers was hitler's testicles that would probably be my guess right but once i know that that can exist it's no longer funny for it to exist because it's just like oh yeah that's just one of the options that's crazy yeah that could be, a, I'm sure this could be a whole podcast episode. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. It, it would have nothing to do with medical wellness and yeah, everything. Our, it's, just, it's just our snobbery <laughs> yeah, yeah. about like, comedy. I'm a comedy snob. The things you find are funny, they're not funny. And you should feel <laughs> bad about it. Yeah, it's a classic. No, but I mean, it's the other side of the coin, of course, is like people are allowed to enjoy things. So if you enjoy it, live your life, enjoy it, have fun. My thoughts on it have, should have no impact on your enjoyment of things right right but also (laughs) i mean don't don't immediately but also (laughs) come on no (laughs) but yeah so that's that's that talking like different uh movies and shows and that kind of stuff and one thing i watched recently that i was talking to you about was was the show chernobyl and that of course is about this idyllic town um where there's an old old man you know he's uh he's a widow but he finds love and um yeah i find it weird that you've been watching so much like hallmark tv <laughs> yeah yeah but it was a great series chernobyl super uplifting <laughs> i would highly recommend <laughs> but it's, it's it's nice you know it's like even though you know he's had a somewhat difficult life you know and even though he's older like there's still a lot of life to live and that was a, it was a really reassuring and um uplifting message yeah 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 of course chernobyl named after the titular character david chernobyl <laughs> Uh, yeah finding love later in life of course you know throughout the show there's there's a little bit of texture to it uh you know he he had a great love in his life at one point in time who passed away and so he's kind of dealing with that still and he but it, it, it's fundamentally an uplifting message and i think you'll be surprised to see how it sort of applies to medical ethics. <laughs> yeah you'd, uh, you'd be very surprised <laughs> I, I do like to imagine there is one person listening to this who like is not aware. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so 
well, that sounds familiar. That sounds pretty nice. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah I heard about that. I, th- I think it won a bunch of awards. Wow, that sounds like a really nice show. Maybe I'll check it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was pretty standard fare for HBO. Classic HBO. But yeah, of course, Chernobyl um, is about the awful and devastating uh, nuclear accident that occurred uh, in Chernobyl, Ukraine <laughs> in 1986. And admittedly, less uplifting than what I just described, for sure. Yeah, it is still a romantic comedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's that, that would be the genre I would put it in, without a question. They have their classic meet-cute. They're in um, the reactor. And, uh, you know, it goes from there. The, it's it's the particles meeting. <laughs> That's the, yeah. Super That's cute. the cute. It's super cute. Yeah, so, you know, a deeply horrifying show, but very good. I, I would highly recommend. Uh, definitely definitely understand why I won all those awards. Um, but it was interesting because I, I, I had mentioned this to you because as with any time I watch any media, because you've watched all media, I immediately talk to you about it. Sure. And uh, I was like, oh, my God. I, was, I, I think at some point I was basically like live tweeting this show to you, more or less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as, as, once again, as I do, and you're like, please stop, I have things to do. <laughs> but I just do it anyway. And um, Well, it's more like, it's just like, yes, I agree the show is great. I did watch it several years ago. Right. So, I've had this a lot this year, because totally unrelated tangent, but I've recommended multiple series of books to multiple people, and now they're reading those books, but they're always texting me about things that are happening wherever they are in the books and i'm like i don't know if i remember that specific plot point that yeah, you're i mean i definitely to. did that to you earlier in the year with Mistborn. yeah yeah that's For what all i'm talking three about books. Yeah. yeah all three books 100 percent. you and then another series of people also i got them to read those books and it's been interesting yeah the entire time so but yeah so we, we were talking about it and, and you actually made a really good point and i hadn't made the connection which is you said this show should be required viewing for everybody in medicine. And when you said it, I was like, actually, I totally agree with this. Um, it definitely should be. And so I think it's something we'll probably talk about in a little more depth over the next few episodes. But I think at least, so that's just kind of like on the radar, because I think it's going to come up. But that, I think, kind of leads us into our topic for this week, um, which is something that comes up very early in the show, which is the discussion and the importance of hierarchy. Of course, in that case, within like, the USSR and within within like nuclear power plants, but of course how that applies to medicine and the way in which hierarchy can lead to disaster, both on a small and large scale. So I think that'll be our focus this week. I guess off the bat, this is a super broad question. In your experience, of course you've dealt with hierarchy within medicine. Are there any examples that kind of stand out to you for things that either were missed or were delayed due to those hierarchical constraints? Sure. Sure. I'll say any story is somewhat filed down because we are still within those hierarchical streets. It's true. We are. Right. Yes. And so I will not, I will avoid too many details yes. on any By given definition, we, this, there's only so much we can say. And also there's like, there's also some like HIPAA related stuff as well. So like, it's going to be... Yeah, HIPAA I don't care about. <laughs> I'll tell I'll I'll read an MRN straight into this mic. I actually frequently do. But Samir has been editing them out. <laughs> oh, I was thinking because you're dictating for radiology, but it's like way funnier that this is just like happening on the podcast. No, it's interesting you mentioned this. So we got like a talk from someone about information security within medicine. And one question I was talking about how like things are like de-identified and ways to destroy stuff and to secure things and whatever. Yeah, he's like, are there any questions? And I was like, well, I have a question, something I've been wondering about for literally years. Why are MRNs considered protected health information? Like the whole point is it's a de-identified number that's 
not relevant outside of this health system. Like if I have a noob's MRN for where he works, or sorry, I should say where he um where he gets medical care, like how's that useful to me? I don't have access to the medical system. He actually made a very good point, which is that it can be used as a connector. So if there are two data breaches and one in which you have people's names and MRNs, and then later someone's like MRNs, date of birth, and some other stuff, the MRN can be the bridge to connect multiple data sets. And I was like, oh, that's a very good point. And not something I considered before. So if anyone else is wondering the same thing, now you know. Okay, well, I'll stop reading MRNs into the mic then. <laughs> yeah, now that you've explained it, uh, I'll stop. But yeah, I, I was also very confused. I was like, well, it's not like a social security number. Like, who gives a shit, right? But that's the reason. So mm, yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, let it never be said you don't learn anything on these podcasts. <laughs> right, exactly. You've learned at least one thing today. And that's our requirement. So time to fuck around for the next 20 minutes. <laughs> we're done. <laughs> yep. Right. So, okay. So you were saying, right. So, of course, we're still within medicine. We're within the hierarchy of medicine. We're with the residents, like, clearly, strongly slotted into the hierarchy of medicine. Yes. So there have been multiple occasions in which hierarchy has been an issue. Oftentimes, I find the issue is more doing things that are not overwhelmingly indicated because the attending who maybe does not have the best grasp of the situation feels as though they are indicated. And so the hierarchy of the situation falls to as the resident or intern in this situation, I am required to execute on plans that I do not think are valid or worthwhile. And I'm the one calling consultants and explaining to them a thing that I do not fundamentally believe is necessary. And obviously, early on, you feel you always have that voice in the back of your head where you're like, oh, maybe I'm just wrong about this. But as time passes and you develop more of your clinical skills, it is often the case that the resident is the person who kind of knows the most about any given case. Right. Even if your overall knowledge might be lower, for that individual, you might just have more information. Right. Right. So over time, your instinct will become correct and you will start to realize, hey, things are not indicated or not worthwhile. And it can be very difficult to navigate those fields. Oftentimes, as a resident, my sort of coping skill is just to play the idiot where I'll just keep asking questions like, oh, well, you know, I need to explain this to the consultant. So can you tell me what you're thinking about this? Uh, Which can go either way. One, either the person you're talking to will realize, oh, maybe the thing I want to order is not indicated. Or two, they will just legitimately think you're an idiot. Yeah, I feel like it's almost certainly the second one that is what occurs. <laughs> yes, yes, more frequently than not. But I've I've prevented a few not indicated studies by oh, nice. using that method. So it, it, it's worked in the past. And then as radiology, obviously, I'm a consultant, so I can just be like, nah, that's not indicated. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, that technique in some ways, and it's, and it's kind of a weird analogy, reminds me of something that's discussed when someone says something like bigoted, like sexist, racist, etc., you sort of, instead of just being like, stop being a racist, you just kind of sort of challenge them to explain it more as if you're like confused by what they're saying. And then eventually they just have to be more and more overtly bigoted until like they can't even like hide behind like just sort of the, the sort of vagaries of language. So it's like if someone makes a comment about being annoyed by like having like a, a woman in the operating room, let's say, I don't know, that's a random example, but sure. And then you kind of are just like, 
wait, why would it be like annoying to have her around? And you kind of just like keep poking at it. Eventually, they kind of have to either like back off or like outright state it. Also not a titty that works great within the hierarchy of medicine, but still, I think, valid, right? It's, it's like a useful way of doing it in a way that isn't directly challenging, but sort of forces people to actually state their um, underlying assumptions and feelings. So once again, it's kind of a strange analogy, but I, I think a uh, similar idea, right? It's a way of challenging without challenging. Yes, I have used that technique before. It's very effective. And depending on how mean-spirited you are, which I am very... <laughs> It's very fun to watch somebody struggle to try to walk around the fact that they're just an asshole and they said something wrong. <laughs> I've also had, this is a very common technique in hierarchy, relating specifically to sort of bigotry or inappropriate comments where somebody says, oh, I guess I'm not allowed to say that anymore. And I, I, I just like to have Stone Cold said to them like, yeah, yeah, you're not allowed to say that anymore. <laughs> the, the time that I'm thinking of most importantly, this got, you know, a little relates to me personally where they were talking about uh, Native Americans and they kept calling them Indians. And they were like, I guess I'm not allowed to say that anymore. And I was like, yeah, I mean, you're a doctor. So like, maybe figure that out. Like, it's not that hard. It's not the hardest thing you've ever done. I know that for a fact. <laughs> Mildly changing your archaic language. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like a thing we do all the time. Right. I mean, if you want to keep calling it, like, Wegener's, too, that's fine, too. <laughs> it's one of those things. That It's a slightly related topic, but challenging people who are saying the wrong thing, who also have power over you, can be exceedingly difficult. And so I've run into it there. Luckily, there I can at least rely on more just, like, even if this person just thinks that what I'm doing is a personal boundary, they will probably just respect that sure. if I'm just, like, don't use that language around me or whatever it might be. People know how to cope with that. But when it comes to the actual like decision making yeah. or thoughts they have about the patient, it is way more difficult to challenge that. No, it is for sure. And it's interesting. So, I mean, there, there are a couple things I looked at for this and there's, there's one article and, and, and we'll link it. And it, it talks about this classic example that's it's mentioned a lot. It's mentioned a lot within business case studies when looking at things like hierarchy and it's, looked, it's been looked at sort of within a, med a medicine context as well. And this famous example of this Korean Airlines flight that crashed in 1997, killed a bunch of people. And as part of the sort of analysis after with like the black box and kind of the investigation, the transportation board basically figured out that the co-pilot basically knew something was wrong, but didn't challenge the pilot's authority because the pilot was a lot more senior. Uh, and if they had, they probably would have stopped the accident from happening. And then that led to like sweeping changes in terms of the way that is approached. I think they've also found in other cases as well that um, in cases where like, the co-pilot is sort of flying the plane or is sort of more in command, then there are fewer mistakes and accidents because the pilot is more willing to challenge the co-pilot than vice versa. That fault follows a standard hierarchy. It led to really sweeping changes in terms of the way the way that it's like expected for someone who's less senior to challenge in the cockpit, basically. And those have, I think people have tried to do similar things within medicine, but I don't think it's really happened. There are a lot of papers from the anesthesia literature. It's, it's these smaller studies with residents and other trainees trying to get them to be better at like challenging authority in these simulated crises. And hit or miss seems to be kind of the result. Like it's pretty, it's hard to do. And it's an interesting read. And, and part of me wonders is, is it easier to have a bigger change when it's over 200 people dying in one shot in a really dramatic way? 
as opposed to like one person dying or someone getting injured, etc. Randomly over time across the country, it's like less of a, it makes less of a splash, right? So it feels like less of an impetus to do something. I'm not sure. Yes. I mean, the airline industry and the medical industry are very similar in the sense that like mistakes are essentially never miss events. Like you can't make mistakes really and in the case of airlines it's like yes hundreds of people will die all at once if it happens whereas in medicine you have more cases where it's like maybe one person dies and there's a lot more gray area in that they might not die they might just have a bad outcome like long term in addition to that they might end up being fine right overall in which case the mistake might get kind of entirely missed and so it can be very difficult to parse out when something bad is happening. I'll mention because I think it's important to mention simply because this is um, a point of annoyance for me. There's a study that came out, I don't know, five, six years ago, and it talked about medical errors and how they're, I think, I, think, I can't remember exactly, I think I might said that they're the third leading cause of death in like the U.S. healthcare system. Not true. That study was methodologically extraordinarily poor. Uh, it basically tried to extrapolate from a small amount of like Medicare data and really broadly characterize things, right? So if somebody dies during a hospital stay and you could codify that a medical error happened during their stay, then they would attribute that death to a medical error. But if like an 85-year-old comes in with like sepsis from pneumonia and then they also maybe get too much of an antibiotic, that's probably not what killed them. So it's like, once again, poor. So I always want to throw it out there because it's the study is mentioned a lot by like the general public and it's super annoying. But... Well, about to say, the study is still trying to measure something which is very real, right? Even if it maybe measures it wrong, which is that medical errors do definitely contribute to morbidity or mortality within the healthcare system. And the fact that it happens at all is too much, and it happens probably quite a bit, um, although unclear exactly how much. And I'll say it's interesting. I think anyone, I remember someone telling me this. I don't remember how it came up. I was a medical student, and I think early on in third year, and they were like, when you're a resident or even as a medical student, you will see like minor medical errors all the time that sometimes are caught or sometimes are not caught. And most times they don't actually matter. It's like really minor things that are like not that big of a deal, right? Like something gets delayed by like an hour because it happens at like shift change. And is that really a medical error? Like maybe, but like you can argue it kind of is, right? Like the fact that that happens at all and like an important medication gets delayed, like that's like reasonably to, I think could, could be classified within that. And it's just sort of a baseline what we what happens. It happens in every field, but of course in medicine, it seems to have a bigger deal. And I don't think I really got that until I was a resident. And when you're just in it all the time, it is kind of crazy how much you see of it and the way in which you don't necessarily always have the power to actually fix it um, because of your role. Um, and I imagine you probably had a similar experience. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it happens all the time where you have so many small errors occurring and so much double checking on everybody else. I mean, 90% of what I did when I was doing my medicine intern was just like checking to make sure that like things had actually happened. Yes. Either making sure that like an order that I had ordered had actually been given or even if somebody else put in the order, if the overnight resident put in the order, whatever it might be, like making sure that it was put in correctly, making sure that somebody who said they were going to put in orders actually did put in orders. I mean, that would be like, it's the worst when you're an intern and somebody thinks they're doing you a favor by being like, hey, I'll put in the orders. And you're like, no, now I have to check all of your orders because like maybe you weren't paying as much attention as I was paying or maybe you missed something that I'm aware of. 
and it can be very, very difficult. And then from the radiology perspective, it's a literally like 90% of our job is just making sure that the studies that people order are indicated and making sure that people aren't tanking their patients' kidneys in the process, which apparently people have a strong desire to destroy the kidney <laughs> at any given time. So you see a lot of it. A lot of it is just checking other people's mistakes or just making sure that things don't get delayed. You know, uh, uh, ordering the wrong study initially, if you know somebody's going to check it, might not seem like such a bad idea. But essentially, you've delayed that study by like two to three days because somebody has to check it, then call you back and tell you to reorder it. And you think, well, it's easy. I'll just order the study and then I'll get my the notification of the right study to order later but it would have saved a lot of time if you had maybe called in the first place and just checked what the right study was people have a really hard time understanding that to the point where it's like you have you kind of just know like you know serial offenders particularly from the radiology perspective where it's like if i'm getting a phone call from this person it's a good chance that this they've like made some sort of mistake or like they've ordered the wrong thing. Every time I see a study from them, it's the wrong study. And that's like really terrifying, right? Is to know that like this person is just consistently making mistakes. And the only reason that they're not getting through is because I am the person who is checking their work. I think as a trainee, what is difficult kind of to your point is that as you go through training, you start to get more of a sense of what you think should be done or shouldn't be. And it can happen in a, a slow sense, like, oh, you're on medicine rounds and you're just, just deciding sort of you know, which antibiotic, let's say, to use in a patient and the attending is missing kind of a, a key part of this patient's history, which could sort of change management. And you have to speak up and say that. And or it can kind of happen in a very sort of quick, rapid sense. I mentioned anesthesia as a good example. And I think the reason it comes up a lot for them is because they have most times, you know, I've heard it described as like 99% kind of just like chilling and then like 1% like pants shittingly scary, like something really bad is happening and you have like seconds to figure it out and fix it or the patient could die. Um, and so in those moments, right, do you have the ability to speak up and to actually ensure that something that you can see is that you can avoid a mistake that you can see happening? And I think what's alarming about a lot of the studies that have looked at this is that even when you're trying to actively train people to do so, it is really hard to do in the moment. And I, I mean, anecdotally, yeah, obviously. I've definitely been in like a surgery before and I'm like, that doesn't seem like totally right. Like I don't, like I, I don't know enough to necessarily say like I know exactly what should be happening, but I'm like, this seems like off somehow. And like, but like, you don't want to seem like an idiot. Like, why am I, like, if I don't really know what's going on, why am I questioning you? <laughs> but then it turns out you were kind of right. You're like, ah, I should have said something. But at that point, like, what are you going to, I mean, that's not helpful. Oh, I, I actually did know this, but I just didn't say anything. <laughs> I mean, I've had that on radiology as well. It's like you're reading a report and you're like, is this a thing? Is this not a thing? And then you do or don't call it. And the person tells you afterwards, like, oh, that was nothing. Or, oh, that was something. And you're like, damn. Okay, well. That sucks. The worst is when it comes back around and somebody's like, hey, you didn't call this on your report. And you're like, no, I remember calling that. And then you look and you realize like it was something that was maybe edited out or downplayed, but ended up being slightly important. That's like, that's really bad. Yeah. So it can be very difficult to kind of tread those waters to figure out like, when am I supposed to call things, especially while you're training and you just don't know if you're just wrong? 
Yes. It can be a really hard feeling. And it's not to say that, like, I advocate for the total dissolution of hierarchy. Like, there are certain situations in which hierarchy is exceedingly important. I've seen codes without clear hierarchy, and they're very, very bad. Like, it's it's dangerously bad. Frankly, ineffective. I'll say even beyond that, like, the, the reason a hierarchy exists, it's not based on, like, royal birth. Like, this is a hierarchy that's fundamentally based on, like, experience and knowledge, right? Like, Sorry, wait. You, the hierarchies in your hospital are not based on royal birth. They used to be. Okay. Because all the doctors in my hospital are, like, dukes or barons. Oh, interesting. I, I, one of the tenets of the ACA, actually, was that, um, you know, switching over to electronic medical records is one. You know, insurance companies can't discriminate in terms of um, pre-existing conditions. And royal birth can no longer be a driving force beyond hierarchies. That was another key aspect. Sure. And I guess that hasn't really like, you know, it's like one of those things where it's like, okay, we can't do this anymore, but we still do it. Sure. You know? so yeah. yeah. It's sort of like, it's, oh, that's a weird coincidence. Like everyone there happens to be of royal birth. It's like, no, no, no. It's because um, they're all so qualified. And you're like, all right. Really? Yeah. Is that? Yeah, okay. Okay. All right. Sure. Right. But sure. like, yeah. but like, but like you get around it because like you justify. Yeah, sure. No, I got you. I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, since I've been here, no, it's not been kind of royal birth as far as I know, but I think historically it was. Yeah, for sure. Historically, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, whatever, you know. Are they ordained by God to be rulers? Right. I can't say. I yeah. can't Do they have that. a mandate of heaven? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> it's hard to say. Hard to say. I, I'm, I'm saying I haven't seen a randomized controlled trial to suggest that they do have a mandate of heaven. And at the end of the day... No RCT. It's not true. I'm sorry. Right. That's, you know. fair. That's fair. That's a, that's a very good point. They always pull up these retrospective studies where they're like, look, mandate of heaven. I'm like, come on. You can make it. You, you can get retrospective data to say anything you want. Also, just a totally secondary point. So um, obviously that phrase, mandate of heaven. And occasionally if I like, um, so look back in college, I might like go grab a bite to eat with um, with a male friend and we would call it like a mandate. And then I would also often refer to them as a mandate of heaven. <laughs> And that just like remind. I totally forgot I used to do that, and it's like really reminded me of this memory, and like very much tickled me. Uh, just a nice nostalgic bit, right there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It was a good time. Yes, usually the hierarchy is based somewhat on merit, right? <laughs> right, and so like there's there's a reason to it. Like you know, I'll, I'll go back to the anesthesia example, which is that yeah, if something kind of emergent is happening, and there's an attending and the resident, like the attending has like years more of experience. They have just that many more reps of dealing with a patient like suddenly becoming like bradycardic they've emphasized those neural pathways even more but to continue with this example maybe that attending actually just came into the room because something was sort of going wrong but the resident's actually been there the whole case and so maybe right like there's only so much you can communicate in that moment right like that attending doesn't know that earlier there was some blood loss that wasn't immediately communicated to anesthesia. And so they actually might be a little behind on fluid, for example. And so there's like, you know, like there are parts that you may not be aware of, even though you have more of that knowledge, right? And it's kind of comes out to what we're saying, which is that your overall knowledge might, might, might be there, but the individual case, you know, that, that may not always apply. But it's really difficult. I guess on the flip side of this, are there particular cases that you've seen or been a part of where you feel like that hierarchy, while exists, is more flattened so that you do have more of an ability to speak up. Like, have you been a part of those types of teams? I will say the code example works very well because I have seen critical care attendings who are very good at managing hierarchy insofar as they can roll into the room, quickly assess who knows the most about the patient, gather relevant information, but still remain in control. Mm. It's just that they're they're balancing that like, yes, 
I know the most about running a code, and you know the most about this specific patient, so let's synthesize this information and work together to get where we're going, right? And the ability to play that line, uh, I think, is what makes them very successful as critical care attendings, right? Conversely, I have seen people hear a piece of information, like, acknowledge it, move forward, and then come to the same realization that somebody just told them on their own. So, like, they need to figure it out on their own. And that's kind of the worst version of hierarchy, which is very, like, performative, Mm -hmm. where they're like, somebody's like, hey, I don't think it's X, Y, Z. And they're like, oh, okay, okay, I'll take that into consideration. And then, like, 10, 15, 30 minutes later, they're like, you know what, I don't think it's X, Y, Z. And it's like, well, cool. What were we doing this whole time? for joining the party, yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And that can be very, very frustrating. It's interesting. That is actually one of those things, and this is kind of a really specific example, but it's come up for me when I'm dealing with, like, weird, complicated consults, and I'm trying to explain it to an attending, and I'm, like, telling them the story, and the story kind of sounds like garbage, and they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm like, no, 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 like, you don't understand. This is a very weird scenario. Like this is like they don't like like this is really strange. Like their imaging doesn't really make sense. Like their presentation, and then they finally evaluate the patient, look at everything. They're like, oh yeah, this doesn't really make sense. I'm like, that's what I was saying. <laughs> I'm not an yes, idiot. Yes. It's weird. It is. It is very frustrating when you know that like they're gonna assume I'm an idiot at first, and I have that. It's like telling a little bit of a story every time, where you're like, I'm gonna tell this consult. It's gonna sound really weird, and I just need you to bear with me. Right, right. Don't interrupt me six times. Just listen to the whole story. It'll make more sense at the end, maybe. <laughs> or it'll make sense why it doesn't make sense right. at the end. Yes, right. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because it's like every time you interrupt me, it's gonna be you saying what my thoughts were while I gather this information, which is a waste of both of our times, because I've already had all, those, all these thoughts. <laughs> yes, yes. And it's also just like, why do I spend all this time learning how a presentation works if you don't want to hear it? If I'm like saying like, oh, well, they had a little bit of, uh, they had bright red stools per rectum. And they're like, what's the hemoglobin? And I'm like, well, I'll tell you when we get to the labs. How about that? <laughs> like, like, get ready. Get ready. Yeah. It's a story. You, all, you don't get the middle. Yeah. yeah. It'll all come together. You'll see. You'll see. And also tell us if I'm telling like a, a seven minute story. This is going to be like a one minute story. Like you can, yeah. you can wait. <laughs> Wait seven seconds. I'm about to say the hemoglobin, homie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, oh, man. I think that is a kind of a key example. And I think what's interesting is that I have been on teams where it actually, there is this flattening of the hierarchy. Like, obviously, the person is still very much like the person in charge, but they're very willing to hear what I have to say. And one example I, I remember, I think I actually may have mentioned this before. Um, I was an intern. I was on the urology service at our main hospital. And the PGY-4, who was on the service, was amazing. He was great. He later was my chief resident when I was a, when I was a PGY-2 on the same, same service. We had a patient who had like a weird, I think they were having like weird hyponatremia. And they had this medication at home. It was like some sort of unusual, complicated, like um, renal medication. And it hadn't been restarted because they were like post-op. And we had this discussion on rounds like, oh, they're hyponatremic. We should like restart this medication. And I was like, I don't think that's how it works. I think this actually would worsen their hyponatremia. It was in the middle of rounds. So I didn't like say it. And then later I went to the PGY4 and I was like, hey, because I, I was like, pretty close with him. And I was like, hey, like, I don't 
think this is going to do what we think it's going to do. Like, I think it actually made things worse. I think we should talk to, like, Reno about it because, like, 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 like nephrology, like, because we don't know, what, what, like, what we're doing. Like, we don't work with this medication ever. Um, and when I looked into it more, like, it could go either way, actually. So, like, that's not. And we talked to them and they were like, yeah, we should definitely not restart this medication. <laughs> it would definitely make things worse. And um, I'm really glad that person was there because if, it had, if they had not been there, I probably would not have brought it up, which is bad, right? Like, I should bring it up, but I wouldn't right. have. And probably would have been bad for the patient. And the entire reason we avoided that was because the hierarchy was not that strict, which is kind of crazy. But I think it's like one of like, I've had obviously similar examples throughout my residency. Um, but one that's really stuck with me because I don't think I would have said anything. Yeah. And the funny thing is, objectively, in any situation, you should say something, right? Because ultimately, had you been wrong, you still would have learned the lesson, which is the whole reason you're there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, what do we lose by asking? Literally yes. nothing. <laughs> and this is the biggest problem with the whole... We can, we've we said this multiple times where we talk about, like, well, you don't want to seem like an idiot. But why don't we want to seem like idiots? We're there to learn. Our, our job title is idiot. We're professional idiots. We don't know things and we're there to get to a better place. Thank you for listening to Mandatory Wellness Session. We are professional idiots. <laughs> I mean... I'm saying if we had merch, do I think the professional idiot shirt would do well? Yes, I do think it would. <laughs> yeah, I mean, almost yeah. certainly. <laughs> but the whole point is for us to be there and learn it. So why do we feel bad about not knowing things when the whole the nature of our position is that we don't know anything? And and it gets back to a topic I think we've talked about before, which is that there is a constant blend between assessment and teaching in residency such that you are constantly feel like you're being assessed so you never feel comfortable being an idiot because you're like well i i will be judged for being an idiot so better to just remain silent and have it be a mistake that the whole team has make made except as opposed to just a mistake that i have made right yes yes exactly that that actually that sums it up really well uh it is weird right it's like well we're all in it so it's like fine, and then somehow that's better. But I'm like, either way, it's a mistake, right? So what's the difference? But right, um, yeah. And so this is actually part of the reason, and I this comes up a lot in surgery, right? There's there's this idea of the surgeon, like the attending surgeon, as this sort of infallible person who like has the confidence to make decisions, to make this cut, tie off this vessel, and like that's what it takes to operate and be good and do these like big surgeries. And that historically has gone with this idea of being like brusque and hard to approach and um, occasionally kind of just a dick in the OR uh, or outside of it. And in my experience within medicine, within residency, I have met surgeons like that. And I have met surgeons who are also very good and not like that. And what I learned from that is that turns out you actually don't have to be like that to be good at your job. That is just an excuse to be a dick. And I consistently think about the fact that I don't, I haven't looked at like the data for all these people, but I suspect there are multiple instances of their patients where things have been missed because their team was too afraid to bring it up to them. I can think of some specific examples offhand. I don't know. I haven't looked at like the data more broadly, but I can think anecdotally of some examples where I know, because I've heard later about this, of examples where things were missed or delayed because someone didn't want to bring it up to like the scary surgeon. And that is terrifying. 
That should be terrifying to everyone within medicine that that exists ever. That you can be such a monster, basically, <laughs> and so terrifying that people will not bring up things to do with patient safety because they're scared of getting like in trouble about it. Like we're not like four-year-olds in like a classroom. This is ridiculous. We're all physicians. And our focus, number one, should be taking care of patients and patient safety and optimizing care. And yet, that does not always happen. And so for me, this is one of those things that, I, beyond the fact that I think there's just like a wellness aspect of like working with someone who's a dick sucks. Like that's just like for any field, that's just like the worst. But I think there's the deeper thing that happens where it it wears at you as like a person. It really burns you out when you have a sense that maybe something could have been avoided or changed if you had spoken up. And the reason you didn't was because of the environment in which you worked. And that beyond being bad for patients is so toxic to you as a person. And uh, it's something that really needs to like change within medicine. Yes, yes. Rigid hierarchy is just kind of like naturally paired with anxiety. Yeah. Because you spend a lot of time perseverating over the things you did and did not say, as you just described. Yeah, I, I'll say as well, I have this distinct memory. Um, I'm now a PGY3, and so I've been taking primary call at this point for nearly two years, so I think it's a little different. I remember when I started taking primary call as a PGY2, I was sometimes a little more um, reluctant to call an attending about something in like the middle of the night because I didn't want to bother them, which is stupid. They're on call. That's literally their job is to be bothered if they need to be bothered. That's right. so That is the description of being on call. But it was a weird thing in my brain. I was like, oh, well, I, I was like, I don't need to bother them for this. And it's like, well, no, if you actually are considering uh, you need to bother them, maybe you need to bother them, right? Like if you, if you already had that thought, maybe you should. Um, and now I feel way less guilty about it. Like if I need, if I think something's weird, I need to call someone, I just do it. I don't care. But I, I, I think that experience is not unusual. I'm sure if you talk to a lot of people like junior residents, they've had that experience as well. Right. I think the biggest thing you need to feel comfortable is to be right. At least like once or twice where you're like, I called and it was an appropriate call. And then you're like, you can start to feel comfortable about calling in general, just relating to that specific antidote. But in general, yes, feeling comfortable, either being wrong or dealing with the outcomes of being wrong is very important. And that's kind of how we can cope with it. It's just like, whatever happens, happens. I have to say what I feel in this moment if the if the attending is going to be super mad at me because i spoke up then at the very least i can say i did my due diligence at right. the end of the day and as a resident you can also say like well i learned that i was wrong about that thing right right and that's not a comfortable place to be necessarily but as is so often the case in residency you don't get to be in those comfortable places. And then conversely what you can do as you become a senior resident is create a flatter environment mm -hmm. and so you know something that i personally tell all my juniors they're the for us the first year radiology residents are about to start call in a few months and they're they're a little worried about it and i said like look if i'm around if i'm like covering contrast or even if i'm at home just shoot me a text if you have a question it's fine like don't worry about it i told them like hey the attendings don't care either they're fine with you calling them they're the nicest people but if you still don't feel comfortable talking to them, talk to me. It's okay. And really, I don't expect them to call me right. or text me all that much. But I'll tell you, when I was in their position, the knowledge that there was somebody I could ask was kind of all I needed. Yep. Really. Because mm -hmm. yeah. it dispels that anxiety, that baseline anxiety. Yeah. On one of our call pools, 
there is a general surgery intern who helps cover urology. They, they, they sort of get the first urology calls and they cover some urology inpatients and they also cover some other services as well overnight. And it's, it's really nice because that means for like a you know, difficult Foley call, which is just like um, we barely tried um, or, you know, something that's, you know, like a random floor call. It means you don't necessarily get woken up for it, which is really nice. But I, I tell them or tell, you know, whoever's on when I'm on call, like for anything you're concerned about, call me. Like, I'm on call, it's my job, and if I don't pick up my phone for whatever reason, like, page me, like, I don't care, like, get a hold of me, um, because I, having been in this situation, like, I, the feeling of not wanting to bother someone is a weird feeling that I think is, like, oddly common within medicine. I've also had the same experience where I've gone to, like, a patient's bedside who's, like, not doing great as an intern, and, like, sort of hesitating a bit to call a rapid response, because I was like, ah. I'm like kind of making a big deal out of nothing. <laughs> and uh, I, I, you know, and I might say I did because I was like, no, this is weird. And it was, I, I should have done it. But like I hesitated and I kind of waited maybe like an extra minute because I was trying to see if it was like fine. And um, same kind of thing. Like, you, you know, I am always of the opinion, you know, like the whole load the boat, um, call who you need to call. Better to overcall than undercall if you need to. I think it's important. I think it's important also as a senior person, um, whether a resident, fellow, attending, to emphasize that to your juniors if they overcall things too. So I'll start this came up for me. I was on call and I got called a patient whose like vitals were really wonky. Like they were, um, I'm not sure they were febrile, but they were like tachycardic. They were a little hypotensive. Um, they were altered mental status. And there was a concern from the ED for 40 days. So necrotizing infection of the groin. I examined them. Exam was a little weird. Their CT scan didn't show any air, but the exam honestly was a little weird. Like it kind of, there were some like wounds and it just looked weird. Plus their vitals, I was like concerned. I was like, I think this could be like the beginning of a Fournier. like, let's take the OR. Call, like my, my, my chief resident came in um, like shortly before they were going to the OR. They did a quick exam and got to the OR and it was me and the attending. And as it turns out, they, it was not, it was not a Fournier's. Um, they actually just had like bad hydradenitis and uh, they also, they, had, they were altered like mentally with like weird vitals for other reasons. We actually ended up talking to medicine and transferring because we were like, we don't know what the fuck's going on. Um, but afterward, I was like super embarrassed because I called my attending in and like the, on like a random weekend evening to do a case that was not necessary at all. Um, and we figured it out. We didn't like cut, or, cut on the patient or anything, but he was like, it's always better to overcall this than to undercall it. Like, yeah, we came in, we did this, but if you missed a 40 as the patient could just die. And it was like a really, it was a really important moment um, because I, I learned from it. He kind of gave me some tips on like ways to sort of distinguish and identify and stuff. I, I was just pretty early as a PGY2, but it also really mattered that he wasn't like, God, you're so dumb. Like, why did you call me in for this? Right. Because in the future, then I'd be way less likely to call him. And uh, I think it's really important to do that within the hierarchy, not only have it open so you can call, but also when they do call to not be like mad about it, even if they're wrong. So important i think yes yes it's huge for radiology too which is why i know i frequently complain about people making mistakes or ordering the wrong studies but i assure you that tone does not bleed over into my actual conversation with them of course because ultimately the more comfortable they feel calling you and asking those questions the less likely they are to actually make those mistakes and it's better to just teach and be open and yes maybe it's a little stressful to you as a person in power but you're the person in power it's you can cope with stress like you're because you got nothing like you're the person in control like be a little stressed because somebody called you when they didn't need to call you right as opposed to the person who is 
not in control who will feel continuously stressed because they know that they don't have any backup. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, I think to that point, I think this is important. People say this often, right? They say the most dangerous resident is like an overconfident resident. And I think that's true as a resident. I think that's true as a fellow. I think that's true as an attending. When you're arrogant, when you're overconfident, that is when mistakes happen. One, because you overestimate your own abilities, but two, because people, either you don't hear people's feedback when you're more junior, or people aren't willing to correct you when you're more senior. And it, it's, just, it's just, it's, there is a line, right? You want to be confident. You don't want someone who's second guessing everything they do. But knowing that line and knowing when is the right time to take a step back or to listen is so, so important. And it's difficult. I'm, I'm not saying it's not difficult, but it's, uh, I think it's one of the most important things you can do, actually, particularly as you become more senior is to keep those channels of communication open. Um, and I think as more junior, um, be willing to take feedback, and but also willing to challenge when you think something is awry or, or going wrong. I, I mean, to be clear, this doesn't apply if you still have the royal hierarchy. Um, that is ordained by God. And so to challenge that um, is to spit in the face um, of heaven. So. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen that go bad in a lot of different ways. I mean, should we have a guillotine in the hospital? No. Objectively, I think that's a bad idea. But in terms of enforcing hierarchy, it definitely gets the job done, you know. And the thing is, it's largely decorative. I mean, I can't even remember. I was I think a handful of people have gotten their heads chopped right. off in the last few years that I've been in residency. So, you know, it's mostly there. It's like the implicit threat of it is like, right. hey, you know. Watch it. <laughs> watch your head. <laughs> That's what people said. Hey, watch your head. And yeah. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's the guillotine. That's why. <laughs> right, right. And that's why you worry about overconfident residents, because if their head gets too big, might not fit in the guillotine. That's the reason. And it's, it's, a, it's largely a mechanical consideration. <laughs> that's, what, that's what it is. Yeah. It's all, it all comes back to that. It's all about guillotine dimensions. I think we can agree. I, and when, when you get down to it, I think all of residency wellness is about guillotine dimensions. And uh, that's why next week we're going to be talking about guillotine dimension. Right. <laughs> that's our topic. So, And of course, we'll also be discussing the guillotine dimension, a horrifying realm made entirely of guillotines. Ah, yes. Yeah. And you'll be surprised how that relates to medical wellness as well. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> well, as always, guys, our theme song is Nothing Slash Anything by Westy Reflector. Uh, you can follow us on social media, on Instagram at MWS Podcast. Our website is linked on Instagram. We are on iTunes, uh, Spotify, amongst many other podcasting apps. And you can email us at mandatorywellnesssession at gmail.com. Uh, let us know your thoughts on this episode, other episodes, or um, send us one good thing that's happened to you recently. No one's been doing that. Yeah. Come on, guys. Has nothing good been happening? Okay, well, yeah, okay, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> has nothing good happened? Maybe. Uh, if, you, if you can't think of anything good that's happened to you in the last week, tell us instead how you think the guillotine dimension relates to medical wellness. Yeah, we're very curious to find out. <laughs> yes. See you guys next week. Bye.